want to invite you to open up once again to the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 2, beginning chapter 2, and we'll go through verse 10 this morning. I believe it's around page uh, 972 if you're using the Blue Pew Bible. In Galatians chapter 2. You know, one of the things that you can't miss, uh, I, I spoke about one earlier, uh, freedom, but one thing that you can't miss, and especially so far as, as we've worked our way through uh, Paul's letter to these churches in Galatia, is that the gospel message is central. Uh, it's, it's important, uh, and it needs to remain intact as it has been given. Uh, you know, the, the reason that Paul began this letter as he did, you may notice back in verses 3 and 4, with just a real abbreviated gospel uh, message, uh, was because of what he's going to follow this with. So right after that, you recall, he immediately begins to, and almost harshly, to chastise the people that are in these churches for beginning to accept something that is not the true gospel. And I think, as I've, as I've said before, that we, as we go through this, this book of Galatians, that one of the things, if not the primary thing, that we need to Uh, take into our hearts is that we are susceptible to the exact same thing, uh, to receiving in the same way that they did that which seems so good, seems so right, sounds so good, but ultimately it has no power. Ultimately it won't heal our, our wound. You know, it's as if your best friend in the world has cancer and she started to have a treatment for that cancer that, that you know is effective. In fact, it's been proved to be just about 100% effective. But still, she's got fears inside, and she gets wind of another treatment that's out there. Maybe it's a vitamin-based treatment or, or, or something uh, that you know will do absolutely nothing for her because it can't kill the cancer. And yet she quits that treatment that can heal her and takes on this other treatment. Now, think about it. What would you say to her? That's kind of the position that Paul is in here. And, and he's saying, in essence, brothers, this that I have given you, which is the true gospel, the, the, the antidote to the one problem that you have in this world, and, and that which can bring joy and life and true freedom, I'm just astonished that so quickly you have turned from that and taken on that which has no power. You've turned away from Him who called you in the grace of Christ, is what He says, uh, and turned to something else. And, And so from this point on, Paul is really relentless uh, he, he's relentless in pointing them to the true gospel. He's relentless in pointing them to the errors that they have, have made. 
Uh, and in this section that we're looking at today, it started off a couple of weeks ago uh, when we began back in verse 11, uh, where Paul is telling his story. He's telling his journey to describe all that he's done to, to protect and to guard this gospel, uh, the truth of the gospel, that which he had given them, the one way of salvation. You know, we live in a world today that is full of other ways. You might say other Gospels. Uh, and, and I think over time my eyes have been opened more and more as I've, I've seen uh, how, how deceptive they can be and how uh, frequent or how prevalent they are. And it's so easy for us to be swayed by, by things that sound so good. They use a, a lot of the right words. And there's always a hook there that's directed to particular ones of us, a hook that will appeal to us. Now, you may know yourself pretty well. You may know I'm susceptible to this, maybe an emotional appeal, it might be. Or I'm susceptible to this. Maybe it's an intellectual appeal of some kind. Maybe it's a, a political appeal of some kind. And I could go on down, down the list, uh, but... Pay attention today as we look at this and at how Paul relentlessly guards and protects this truth, the true gospel, and really the simplicity of the true gospel, because none other has the power to save. Now, we're going to pick up this morning right in the middle of of Paul's story about himself following his conversion. And so the dates that he gives here, or the the number of years that have transpired, appear to be since his conversion. We saw a couple of weeks ago that uh, Paul had spent the first three years after his conversion in what appears to be Arabia, the desert outside of Damascus. Uh, And there, we don't know a lot about it, but he he seemed to have have, uh, seen the Lord Jesus Christ and experienced him there uh, and, and that's part of what build, built the basis for his ministry later on. But then he made his first trip to Jerusalem, and we uh, can, can see that back in, in chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, and he, he went and spent some time privately with a couple of the, the, the leaders, the disciples, you know, with James and Peter. And then for about 10 years... He went back to the area of his upbringing, back to Cilicia in, in Acts. We read about Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, and uh, 10 years, and it's years of obscurity. We don't know exactly what he did there. I believe he probably ministered, certainly the Lord ministered to him there. And then after these 10 years, uh, he goes back to Jerusalem. It, it appears, if our timeline is correct there, uh, we, we got to work between the book of Acts, book of Galatians, and then some of his, his other letters as well. Uh, but uh, right at the beginning of chapter 2, as I begin reading, he's going to talk about 14 years. That's 14 years since his conversion. Uh, and so as I read through this, recognize what he does with the gospel, how he preserves, protects and uh, provides for the people. Uh, So again, this is Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, page 972 in the Blue Pew Bible. 
Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the, uncircum- uh, on, on the contrary, just on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Let's look to the Lord for a moment. Father, we uh, we thank you that we can know as we open up to the book of Galatians chapter 2, we can know that this is from you, that you provided it for us, you provided it for our uh, strengthening, our edification, our our knowledge, our understanding, our correction, uh, our help. And so I pray, Father, that as we go through this passage, that you would help us to have uh, the ability to take this in, to use it, to apply it to our own hearts, to hear your gospel truly, to be able to recognize that which is not, and to therefore follow you and to live out in the freedom that that gospel provides. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think you probably know this, that feelings run deep when it comes to protecting freedom. You know, we, we know this partly well because of our, our nation and its heritage. Uh, we live in a country that was founded upon the principles of freedom by a people who knew originally what it was like to live without certain freedoms, especially religious freedom, the ability to freely worship. And so many fought, and they gave their lives for that purpose. And so today we are, at least in, in many senses, we would say, a, a free people. You know, in less than a month, we're going to celebrate uh, July the 4th, Independence Day, which we know is all about celebrating uh, that freedom which was fought for and gained. Uh, 
we can think of other ways that that has shown itself in our, in our country over time. Uh, that fight for freedom, the civil rights movement, was all about uh, liberation, uh, a fight for freedom. And in many ways, the abortion debate today is also all about a fight for freedom. Now, think about those who are, who are pro-abortion. Uh, they see freedom as being a, a, a right. And so, you, you, what do you hear so often if you watch TV? We, we were at the Supreme Court a few weeks ago, and we saw it on the, on the, the protest uh, posters and uh, being screamed out, uh, and it was, it's my body. Uh, this is my choice, uh, repeated again and again and again. You think about those words, what is it talking about? It's talking about personal autonomy, about freedom over this, over my own body. And then you, you see how that is carried out, and you realize, well, well this, is, this is very important. This runs very deep. It's jealously guarded over. And woe to those who, who would take that freedom away. We've already seen uh, with the Supreme Court justices being threatened, uh, you know, the, the, the depth at which this goes, and, and I think we all know that's not the end of it. But of course, what's failed to be recognized there is that there is a, a life, another life, that is of concern there, a life that has a God-given freedom to live. And that freedom needs to be protected, and that's what the whole pro-life movement is about. It's about protection for the most vulnerable, protecting that, that right to life, the, the freedom that God has given. Uh, and yet we know that when protecting freedom, it comes at a price, that there is a cost, there is a, a fight that needs to take place. And that's what that's what Paul's motivation is here in this book, and, and you can see it in his demeanor. Uh, this is not a fight, as he talks about freedom. This is not a fight that he's willing to lose, because this is a freedom that was purchased by Christ upon a cross uh, for a, a, a people specifically that he died for and that he provided for. And so Paul, Paul knows what uh, what needs to be guarded over in order to protect this freedom. And it is the gospel. And he knows that if someone tries to add to that gospel or take away from that gospel, then woe to that person or those people if they try to steal away that freedom. So the gospel, all important. And, and I think as we go through this book, one of the things that we need to take on is, is to adopt that same attitude that, that Paul has here about the gospel, recognizing its importance, recognizing how easily it can be changed into something else. You know, we live in a time today in which many people seem to have this great desire to have their own version of the good news. Uh, and so... That puts the church under, under a great pressure to compromise again and again and again. And inevitably, in that compromise, what will happen? And when it's compromised, freedom will be lost. 
the freedom that we have in Christ. And that is, as Paul uh, puts it out there, that's unacceptable. The, the gospel must be guarded at all costs. Now, this is what Martin Luther, great reformer, said. He said, we can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is that. You know, you can hear in Luther's words and his demeanor the same as we get with, with Paul, and that is that. Uh, the unaltered gospel is the only way that we have freedom in Christ. And so we need to take this protection of the gospel seriously. And so what we're given here uh, is Paul walking the Galatians through how he has protected the integrity of the gospel for them. And that's what we need today. And so what I'd like to do is to look at different aspects of that protection of the gospel that, uh, that Paul gives here. So the integrity of the gospel, Paul says in this passage, must be protected, number one, against corrupting influences. Number two, it must be protected by God's church. And finally, it must be protected for God's people. Against those influences that would corrupt it and would change it into something else by that which God has ordained, His church, and protected for God's people. So first of all, the corrupting influences... Uh, and, and really here, I think what needs to be impressed upon us is how prevalent and how insidious that the opposition to the true gospel is and how effective it can be when it comes in and we are unawares. Uh, the enemy wants you and wants me to be complacent. But what Paul shows us is that we need to be at all times vigilant, really expecting something to lead us astray from the true gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have trust in those who are, who are preaching and, and those who are teaching, uh, nor do we need to just pick everything uh, apart and, and come at uh, the teaching in that way. But I, do, I am saying that we need to, to be diligent and, and you need to know what to look out for. A little bit of background, just remember here who Paul is writing to. He's writing to, to Gentiles, to non-Jews. Gentiles who had believed in Christ, believed that he had paid the price for their sin in full upon the cross, removing their sin and guilt so that they were fully received and accepted by God, by their faith alone. That was the means. The, the, the basis uh, for their salvation, it's, it's what Christ did. The means to receive that was faith and faith alone. Uh, so these were a people who had tasted true freedom. Uh, they, they knew what uh, freedom was, freedom from what, where they had been in the past under the law. And so now, all of a sudden, there are false teachers who have come amongst them. Uh, there they were, they had experienced freedom, uh, and, and they had had the weight taken off their shoulders. I, I, if you, you may know someone, you may know about yourself, 
in your own experience what it's like coming to faith in Christ uh, and uh, realizing that all that work that I did before, all the performance that I needed before God and before other people, that's removed. I am fully accepted. I'm fully loved. I'm fully received. And you, you know what that sense is to have that weight taken off. Well, this people had that, and then these uh, false teachers have come in amongst them, teaching that faith is not enough. And what they pointed to was you need to become circumcised. You must become like a Jew. Now, we may, that may seem a little foreign to us, but if you think about it, that can be really appealing. You need to be circumcised. And when you do that, you'll know. Because you can tell, you'll know that you're a part of us. That you are a child of God. You don't have to, to, to wonder or doubt anymore. You've done this, and you're, you're His, you belong. Now, for Paul, that was a denial of the gospel. Because he knew that circumcision just represented the rest of the law. So that you had to do it all. All of the law had to be accomplished. And, of course, he knew he was the one who had been blameless uh, in all that he had done before, but he knew that's, that's a, 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 an achievement that is impossible. Freedom in Christ depends upon faith and faith alone. Now, that's why Paul is so urgent with them here, because they're putting themselves back under the thumb of the law, and he's saying, don't relinquish that freedom, that which you have in Christ. Now, in reality, I just have to say here, we've got to remind ourselves that if they had truly uh, professed faith in, in Christ, and, and Paul even couldn't see that for certain, if they had truly come to, to true faith, then they would come back. They would not remain under that, uh, the, the constraint, the teaching of the false uh, teachers. But he had, to, he had to teach them. He had to, to draw them in just as we need uh, the exact same. So here's how Paul appeals to them. Uh, he recounts to them that he had faced something very similar to what they, the Galatians, were going through. Almost the same thing, and perhaps from the same people. Now, it probably happened back in, in Antioch. Uh, look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. You know, these false teachers, they're called in, in other places Judaizers, the same as, as they're experiencing in Galatia. They, they, they were teaching that the Gentiles must become Jews in effect. But look at how he describes uh, their coming amongst them. It, they, were, they were covert. Uh, they were secret in what they were ultimately looking to achieve. It's almost like they were undercover spies. Keep this in mind. That's how the enemy works. That is how uh, this occurs today in fellowships within the church, that there are those who, who come across as being completely what we would call orthodox. They're of the faith. They're of the true faith. They, they, they profess the right things. They use the right words. And what they say is appealing. 
But what they were doing here is they were adding to the gospel, and that's what happens today. But it can be uh, so difficult to spot. They were saying, you need to do these things. And in effect, they were putting them back under the law. And, you know, one of the reasons I think that's so hard to detect and to discern is because it, it is something that we're very used to. That's, that's the way we think in our minds that the, the world works. And, and it's even attractive at the same time. If I do A, then I will receive B. Think about the control that that gives us. If I do this, then I'll receive this, and I need only do whatever's necessary in order to get this. It gives me control. You know, I, I had someone uh, send me an email uh, some, some time back. Uh, they were working through uh, what does it look like to, to relate to the Lord, and, and he, this, this man said, you know, I've, I've said a prayer, and I even, I think maybe he said, I gave some money to, to the church, and, and I've abstained from doing these things. And then I waited upon God, and nothing, nothing, no result. He was, he was almost saying, is God really there? I, I've done these things. But you know what I didn't hear? I didn't hear anything about, uh, I, I've, I've trusted in, I've put my trust in Him. I've put myself in Him. I, I know about His, something about His goodness and I trust in that, and, and I'm living out of His love for me. It was more like, you may have heard this, that God is this cosmic bubblegum machine that you put something in and you receive something out. That's not God at all. That's putting yourself under the works of the law. You know, I'll do whatever needs to be done in order to be good enough. Those are the key words there, in order to be good enough. And can you see there how that's, that's slavery? Because there's always a weight on your shoulder. What, what is good enough? You're never truly good enough. And I'll be honest, I'm capable of preaching in that way. I'm capable of saying, you need to read your Bible. Uh, you, you need to spend time in constant prayer. You need to be together in, in fellowship, come together as we, as we come and, and gather for a Bible study and do your, your preparation ahead of time. And you need to serve, serve on, maybe it's the children's ministry team. And by the way, don't, don't forget to, to give as well. And you know what? Do these things and, and God will be pleased with you. You know, I, that, I, I'm fearful at times. I hope you don't hear that message because that's the same message that these people were hearing here. That's something that can be appealing. I know what needs to be done. You've given me the checklist. I do these things. But you know what it doesn't take? It doesn't take trust in a good God, a God who loves us no matter what and has already received, received us. And at, at the same time, in those words, do you feel the weight it just increases with each item that's placed there. I need to do this. Need to do well. How well do I need to do it? Well, you need to do do well with it. Well, that's what these teachers were doing, and that's what Paul is intent on protecting against. Look with me at verse five, and how Paul responds. 
He said, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We did not yield even for a moment. Now, Paul knew that if you want to keep your freedom in Christ, you've got to fight for it. You've got to stand up against the, the, the opposition. You've got to defend the gospel. You know, Jesus said uh, a wonderful uh, couple of verses in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's only one truth. There's only one gospel, and we're called to, to know it and to be vigilant. Be vigilant in, in the books that we read, to be vigilant in what we hear and listen to over the internet, uh, who it is that we hear and, and how we listen to what they say, uh, vigilant in the movies that we may watch, vigilant even in the devotions that we use daily, vigilant in those whom we sit under in the church, and vigilant in what we allow to grab our hearts and to move us. The question is, are we trusting in Christ, and are we trusting in His works alone? Or there's that, uh, that hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right there. Trust in Christ and Him alone in the work that He has done. Christ, death and resurrection. So, the integrity of the gospel must be protected against corrupting influences which are all around us. Uh, and also, the integrity of the gospel must be protected by God's church. You think about it, no one else is going to protect the gospel. Uh, God has ordained the church to proclaim the gospel. And it is the church whom God intends to protect. And that's what we see here. You would uh, look back at verse 1. We see Paul going back to Jerusalem. And remember, I, I talked about the first trip he made to Jerusalem. And this trip here is probably his second trip, where it says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus with me. Now, it's probably his, his second trip. I, I say that because there's a big debate uh, about this. Some believing that this is his third trip, it's act, that, that it's actually... Uh, the trip, if, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, the whole church, uh, the leaders of the church coming together to make a very important decision. It's really a decision relating to what we're talking about here. Do Jews need to be, uh, do uh, Gentiles need to become Jews? Um, I actually believe that this is not his third trip. It's not that one. That this is his second trip, which is documented in Acts 11. The primary intent of that trip uh, for Paul was to care for those, to bring to Jerusalem an offering for those who were in need because of a famine. Uh, and this fits for a number of reasons, but especially because this is not a, a, a public meeting that he has with the apostles. Uh, it's a private meeting, but there are other reasons as well. But either way, uh, notice what Paul is doing here on this trip that he makes to Jerusalem. Uh, he says he, he went up after 14 years taking Barnabas, taking Titus, 
He says, I went up because of a revelation. Uh, that's something that we, we do get out of uh, chapter 11 of Acts. There is a revelation that comes through a, uh, through a prophet. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And so again, I believe that Paul's first purpose here was to bring this aid to those in need in Jerusalem. But he had a secondary purpose that had to do with the gospel. Had to do with the gospel that he's been proclaiming. He said, I went to set before them. This is before, uh, before Paul, Peter, I'm sorry, before Peter, James and John, the, the gospel, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And we know that Paul has already been dealing all along with these, the, the Judaizers, Jews that are posing as Christians, many of them it seems, and criticizing the gospel, his gospel. And they appear to have been making a lot out of the church leaders and, and even saying it appears you know, the, the, the leaders, the apostles, Peter, James, they, they're in line with, with, with our, uh, our requirements that Gentiles must become Jews in order to be saved. They, they must become circumcised. And so, so Paul goes up for the good of the church to make sure that there was agreement all around on what the gospel, the true gospel, was and that all were in agreement over it, and so that his work was recognized. He knew that he was called by God. He felt that calling inside, but he needed that affirmed by the other leaders within the church. You know, Paul, it's pretty clear here, Paul wasn't concerned that he was teaching the wrong thing. Uh, Paul had heard directly from the Lord and, and received the gospel, but he wanted to make sure that they had unity around this which was so important, the gospel, so that the integrity of the gospel wasn't compromised, and so that the people weren't left in confusion. And you'll notice there that Paul even brings a test case with him. He brought Titus with him. Titus was a Gentile, and Titus had never been circumcised. And so look at what he says in verse 3. After he brings Titus there, he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. In other words, and we see this near the end as well, the result of this meeting was this unanimous agreement of the, the leaders in the church. Now, this was something that could easily have split the church and would have split the church. Uh, some people on one side, some people on the other, but what we see by Paul going there uh, initially and meeting privately and then later going and there's this public meeting to make a, a decision and to publish that decision that, that Paul is seeking after the peace and the purity of the church. Both the, the peace of the church coming together in unity. We profess the same gospel and the purity of the church. We uphold that which God has given us. Both need to be in place. And we see where, where Paul went to do it to the church. This is an important function of the church, to guard 
the gospel. You repeat that important function, a critical function of the church, to guard the gospel. You know, as I mentioned earlier in my prayer, um, tomorrow the PCA is going to begin their, their general assembly in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and the general assembly is made up of all the elders within the church. Uh, and so it'll be all those that, that end up going there, all the, the elders, and all on a, a level playing field. It, you, you hear the echoes of that with what uh, Paul said here, that uh, you know, I, I went there, these, these were pillars of the church, as said by others, but, but to me, that did nothing to me. We're, we're, we're the same. We're serving the Lord in the same capacity before the Lord. doesn't mean that offices aren't recognized and things like that, but uh, as we gather together in, in Birmingham, all elders have the same. They've got one, one vote. Uh, and so all the churches are represented there. And we're going to deal with a lot of matters there, a lot of administrative matters, oversight of different organizations, Mission to the World and others. Uh, ju- there will be judicial matters that will be brought up, disciplinary matters. But at the heart of, of it all, and the purpose for all of it, really boils down to one thing. We are to safeguard the gospel. And the truth is that people are always working in different ways, usually not even realizing that they're, they're doing it, but working to change the gospel. Uh, maybe it's that sin in this area shouldn't be considered to be so important. That's not what the Bible really intends. Or, or maybe there's a particular experience of the Holy Spirit that is needed in order to be a, a Christian at a certain level or uh, maybe we need to, to kind of alter a little bit our description of who God is to make Him more palatable to those that we're trying to reach. And so always there's a good reason there. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel is what we're about yet. What we need to do at General Assembly, the same as, as Paul was doing, is to make sure we're not running or have not run in vain. And, and so this, there's this central function of the church, making sure that there's unity and that the gospel itself is not compromised in any way. And what that requires is openness. And it requires honesty. Notice what Paul did. He went and he sat before them. He said, this is the gospel that I am bringing to the Gentiles. Uh, fully open. Uh, that's what we're called to do. And uh, that's what we'll seek to do over this next week in all these matters as, as we, within the bigger church, uh, address uh, things. You know, God's church is not about seeking success in all little kingdoms. That's what we do, right? It's our pride that gets in the way. But God is about, through His church, proclaiming the gospel and teaching the gospel, and, and, and living by the gospel, so that it's God who's doing the directing. He, by His Word and Spirit. And so as we go in Birmingham, that's what we'll be seeking to do. With Christ as the King and Head of the Church, you, you ask, well, how can you do that? Uh, it's still you making the decisions. As we are, as a, a, a unity of, of brothers together, submitting to the Lord, in true submission to Him, then we are able 
to, by his word and by his spirit, be led by him. So the first thing, protecting against corrupting influences. Secondly, uh, protected by God's church. And then finally, just briefly, uh, notice here that the gospel is protected for God's people. And we're reminded in this passage about why the gospel is being guarded over and protected. It's not just for the sake of the gospel itself, but ultimately so that it will reach people for Christ and, and be used in the lives of people as they live their lives. And so, so Paul gives his ultimate motivation at the end of verse Five. We already looked at the first part of verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. Then he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, Paul is engaged in this, this battle to protect the gospel because he, he knew the danger of spiritual bondage, uh, that, that the gospel would be changed and it would put people back in the place of performing in order to, to achieve acceptance. Uh, and with that, I'd just like to review real briefly, what does Paul say right at the beginning of this book is the gospel? Verse 3, chapter 1, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the, from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice, just a couple of verses. To deliver us from this present age, part of the gospel always has to be, really the beginning point of the gospel, is a recognition of where we are, what, what our situation is, that we are sinful ourselves, and we live in a world that is turned against God, this present evil age, and to recognize, therefore, by God's Word, that we are lost in that condition. That's, that's the beginning point of the gospel, that we are sinful and we are lost. But God, who Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us, that by trusting in Him, and that's what this whole book is about, faith, that by faith alone, by looking to Him, trusting in Him, following Him, that by faith alone, we receive what He is there to give us, what He has given us, He has delivered to us. He gave Himself for our sins. He died upon the cross. And we can add to that, as, as Paul says again and again, and rose from the dead. And so those two things, the, the cross and the grave from which he arose. And right there, trusting in that, it's that simple, trusting in the work of Christ, the the completed, the finished work of Christ, and following him, and trusting, therefore, that all that, that he said is ours, all that he has promised is ours, belongs to us. And from that point on, he will change us inside. There are no more works that are needed, nothing more that needs to be accomplished, nothing more that we must achieve in order to be accepted. And then all of those other things become, we've got a different way of approaching the law. So then instead of it it standing over us and hammering us, 
All of those things that we do become out of joy because we know we are loved by the Lord. And so we want to serve Him. And so we, out of, out of a heart of joy, we continue to serve. Now we know sanctification uh, is a process, and we're not there entirely but at the same time, to know that basis, the gospel, and then to live it out daily. The gospel is not one time. It is day after day. Uh, you know, I want to end uh, this morning with another quote by Martin Luther. This comes out of his, uh, his commentary on the Galatians. If you know about Luther, he was probably the greatest fighter against spiritual bondage you know, behind the Apostle Paul of the church as known. And so you can hear in his words this knowledge, understanding of the danger that faces us and the need that we have for a pure gospel. He said, the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who, by the will and command of the Father, became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for He has not lived up to His promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, for by it we are striving to preserve the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. Remember what Paul said, to them, we did not yield submission, even for a moment. Paul is saying, make sure that you know the gospel. Make sure that you live by the gospel. And make sure that you use what, is God, what God has given us to guard the gospel. Please join me. Father, we thank You that in Your Word that You reveal what we can come to know by experience. Uh, that there, there are many obstacles in each one of our lives. There are obstacles against us hearing and following the true Gospel and continuing to follow. And yet, what we see in Your Word and what we can know by experience is that You have provided for that by Your Word and by Your Spirit and by Your church, by all the provision that You have, have given us. And so I, I pray, Lord, that You would help us to be vigilant. Uh, help us to recognize error when we see it and to be quick in the right way to correct it. And then help us, Lord, to take great joy and the freedom that we are able to have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.